let me introduce this by a little story about one of my daughters, Bella. Happened nine years ago. She was six years old. I had tried to get my daughters to memorize the books of the Bible. It makes finding the book a lot easier now with apps and stuff. I don't even know if it's that valuable. But back then it was, so um, memorize the books of the Bible. They got to Deuteronomy and they're like, Dad, we can't say that word. I can't say it. So they gave up. But a teacher of theirs down in the kid's wing said, if you will memorize all 66 books of the Bible, I'll give you an MP3 player. So all of a sudden their tongue was loosened. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. So she's memorizing away. And she came to me and she's like, Dad, I've memorized all the names of the second, but I haven't memorized the names of the first. I said, well, most people actually refer to those two as the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the first and second works. And then she looked at me, she said, Dad, why are there two? Did, did God have to like start over or something? I thought, what a brilliant question. What a hard question. Go ask your mother. I don't know. <laughs> it's a common question for believers, right? What's the deal with the Old Testament where God seems kind of angry and like he woke up without any coffee and he seems to be killing people and then God, the son in the New Testament is nice and kind and he dies for people. What, what is the deal? It seems like they're very different. And this is a question that's been there for 2,000 years. 1,800 years ago, a guy named Marcion actually made his own Bible. He only made it of 10 books of the Bible that we have today. He got rid of all the Old Testament, got rid of everything he didn't like, Revelation, and said, this is the Bible. Now, he's a heretic today, but he had the same kind of thing. That, that God's not God. This is the God we like. In our own history... Thomas Jefferson, 220 years ago, took a penknife and cut out all the things that he liked. And you can get on the Smithsonian and read the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Where he got rid of, no, I don't like any of that stuff. I just like this. So it's common. But what is the deal with the two? Did God start over? And then with that comes the questions that I get and it's usually somebody bringing some kind of text from the Old Testament saying, hey, there's this law I read do I have to keep this rule? Do I need to wear clothes that have a blue ribbon sewn in them? Can I not eat crab and shrimp? Is getting a tattoo illegal? Is shaving the side of my face illegal? Like, do I have to keep all these rules? What's the deal with all this? So it hits on all those, this question. And what I think Pentecost does, this little section of scripture, it shows something. It shows that, no, God hasn't changed. And God's purpose for humans from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 is exactly the same. His destiny for us, his desire for us, it's always been the same. And so my hope is today to maybe give you a little bit of ammunition when you start to think about that and then apply it to your lives because it can actually change you if you understand God's destiny for you, all right? You're gonna have to think though. In fact, I debated teaching this because it does require some thinking. And uh, my, my reason for doing it is I think you guys are smart. 
all right? So prove me right, please, no. So we're gonna move to some other texts that are really important, okay? So uh, Genesis, know where that's at? First book in the Bible. Then Exodus, know where that's at. But here's the background. Let me set this up for you. Chapter one, Jesus has died, been buried, rose, hangs out with his disciples for 40 days. Then he tells them, go wait in Jerusalem. And they wait for 10 days. And on the 50th day, it's Pentecost. On Pentecost, we just read, God's spirit comes and fills the church. And on Wednesday, we'll talk about, not this Wednesday, but on a Wednesday, we'll talk about tongues and that kind of stuff, right? So that happens. It happens on a day that Jesus actually says, you gotta wait for it. He could have been right then and there, hey, be filled with the spirit, right? So Jesus, wait for it. It happens on Pentecost. Now, when you hear Pentecost today as a, as a Christian, there's all this baggage that comes with Pentecost now, Right? The Azusa Street Revival, speaking in tongues, snake handlers, poison drinkers, like that kind of, there's a package that we start to think about when Pentecost comes up. And it's actually not that helpful. It's like when I say tea party, what comes to mind? Could be some ladies drinking some Earl Grey with their pinkies out, asking for Grey Poupon, tea party. Could be the Boston Tea Party could be a conservative movement in America that started in 2010, right? All those are contained in that word, that, that phrase, I should say. The same thing with Pentecost today. Well, a very important th- thing to know at the, about the Bible is this. If you're ever going to know what it means for us today, you have to first discover what it meant for them 2,000 years ago. So to a first century Jew, here's what Pentecost was. It occurred 50 days after Passover. Matt, what's Passover? Passover is when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt and from an evil Pharaoh that was killing their babies. They leave there, cross the Red Sea, go across the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai and 50 days after Passover, God brings down, sends down Moses with the 10 commandments. Pentecost memorializes the giving of the law. That's what it remembers. So Jesus now says to his disciples, I want you to wait. And the giving of the Spirit's not gonna happen until Pentecost. So for some reason, this date is very important. And when I think when you actually look into it, you find something out and it unifies God's plan for you and me, right? So here we go on that. Genesis chapter 26. This is, I'm just giving you a snapshot of Abraham because Abraham is really an important dude in the Bible. So listen, Abraham has died. God is now speaking to his son, Isaac. Listen to God's evaluation of the life of Abraham. Genesis 26, five. Because... Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The word obeyed here is the word shema. It literally means to hear. 
So the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. It, it's that Shema. But in the Bible, the Old Testament, the word Shema is actually used both to hear, which it means, and when it's used of God, it's also used to obey. Because to hear God means you must obey God. If he's God, if you heard him, you have no logical choice but then to obey him because he's God. So that's what's happening. So Abraham shemad his voice, obeyed his voice, translated here, kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, my laws. What law did Abraham have? Did he have the 10 commandments? No, those will come in 600 years. Did he have the 603 extra Mosaic commandments? No, those come after the 10 commandments. What law did Abraham have? What law did he keep? What commandments did he keep? What statutes did he keep? Right? It's actually a, a dilemma that people have to answer. And here's how I think it should be answered. Here's what Abraham did. When God looks back at Abraham's life, he goes, he did everything I wanted him to do. That's what he's saying by all these words. Abraham lived the life that I wanted him to live. And here's what he did. In Genesis 15, when Abraham is an old man, he's 90 years old. He has been married to his wife for probably 70 years. They are childless. There's no hope of them having children. And God says to Abraham, come outside, bud. Look up at the stars. If you can number them, that's how many kids I'm gonna give you. And it says that Abraham, Genesis 15, six, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. One of the most important texts in the entire Bible. The New Testament grabs that and says, that's it. What Abraham did was simple. He believed that God was good and generous and that he was gonna do exactly what he said. And he believed him. And God said, that's what I'm after, that kind of faith. And then later on, he obeys him in a very, very hard way. Genesis 22, take your one son, sacrifice him. And Abraham trusts God is still good and generous and he would bring back his son no matter what, right? That's what Abraham does. And was Abraham perfect? Remember his life? We went through it this summer. He lied repeatedly about his wife, saying she was his sister and she gets sucked into these harems. He had the Hagar problem. When God told him to leave his land and go to the promised land and leave his family, he doesn't. He brings his family, goes halfway, lives there until his dad dies, and then he takes off and still brings with him Lot, who's a continual problem, right? So he kind of half obeys. But what Abraham nails and what God says was perfect was he believed me. He believed that I was good and generous. So God's evaluation of Abraham is nailed it. Okay, keep that in mind. Now, Exodus 19. Here we come. Passover's happened. They've traveled. They're now at Mount Sinai and they're waiting for something, okay? This is where we get to Pentecost now. Verse one, chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. 
And they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I am good and I'm generous. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey Shema, if you will Shema my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what's happening. God is using terms very similar to Genesis 26. He's saying, if you'll shema my voice, like Abraham did, keep my covenant. What covenant exists in Exodus 19? There's only one. It's the Abrahamic covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Those three combined, you get the Abrahamic covenant. That's the only covenant there is. The Mosaic covenant comes in chapter 20 and then goes on from there. That when God is saying to his people, Shema my voice and keep the covenant, there's one, it's Abraham. What God is saying is simply this. I want you to be like Abraham. He nailed it. Walk with me by faith, like Abraham did. And if you'll do that, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation, All right? So Moses comes down, verse seven, called the elders of the people, set before them all these words. All the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear what I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, what words did Moses tell God? The people agree. Well, Shema your voice, keep the Abrahamic covenant. Here's what God says. Awesome. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for all the people around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Okay, here's where we have to do some work. God, creator and sustainer of the universe, says, I'm gonna come down on top of this mountain I am good and I'm generous and I'm looking for Abraham-like people that will pursue me out of faith. But if you touch the mountain, it's dangerous. 
what God is saying is this. It's like the sun. Did you enjoy yesterday? Can you believe it was February 10th? Can you believe that? I mean, brilliant day, right? The sun is good and generous, but can you hug the sun? Can you get too close to the sun? No. It's like that. God's like, hey, I'm good and generous, but, but also look out, kind of like the sun. There's a danger, so be careful, right? That's what he says. But then verse 13, I love the ESV. It's what I read, what I study. But every once in a while, the ESV, I just call it, it loses its nerve. And this is one of those times. So if you look at verse 13, if you have a different translation, you can tell me what yours says. But the end of verse 13 says this. When you've you got all the people near the mountain, they're not allowed to touch the mountain, right? They're right there at the mountain. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, the ESV says, they shall come up to the mountain. Any other translations? Near? Your, may go up. What translation? NLT. The New Living Translation. Nails it. Okay. It's the Hebrew, be-alah. It means, literally, to climb up. It's the permissive imperfect, which is just saying permissive means permission. You now have permission to climb up. So what God is saying is this, get them to the mountain. Don't touch the mountain yet. But when the trumpet blasts, they may be Allah. They, they have permission then to begin to climb up the mountain, to come into my presence, to meet with me. It's the starting gun. Bang, come up. Be like Abraham was. Genesis 18, I met with Abraham and spoke to him face to face. That's what I want. I want you guys to come up and meet with me. Okay, going on. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. That's the purpose. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and all the mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. So here's what happens. They come to the mountain. They're standing at the mountain. Verse 19 says, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. So it says, if they're all there waiting the trumpet blast is like going on and on and on and on and on. Why? Because they're supposed to be moving up the mountain, but they're not. So the trumpet blast just keeps going on and on and on, waiting for somebody to be like, okay, I'm going. But no one goes because they're afraid because there's fire on that mountain and there's a thick cloud on that mountain and it's scary up there. So they never go up. And so then God, here's what God does. 
all right? And God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to, the, to Yahweh to look and many of them perish. So now God says, too late. And what you have from here now is Exodus 20, the giving of the 10 commandments. And there is a pattern that in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible is repeated over and over. That God will ask his people to do something, shema me. They'll disobey, like Exodus 19. And then God will give commands. Then God will ask them to do something. They won't obey. Then God gives more commands. And this pattern, it's a cycle that's repeated over and over and over. That the law was given every time that they did something that God asked them not to do. Or they did not obey something God asked them to do. That's what happens. It's like you with your kids, right? Like you, you make more and more rules. Why? Because you're shocked at what your kids do. Like, I didn't even think you would do that, right? I was looking at an old picture. Like we've gone through multiple dishwashers and there's this picture of my son Elijah using it as a trampoline. I'm like, oh, do I need to make a rule? Like, okay, from now on, kids, do not use the door of the dishwasher as a trampoline, right? That's what God's doing. Oh, that's why he's got 613. I can't even believe he did that. I gotta make a rule about not using the door of the dishwasher for a trampoline. That's what God does. So if you read Galatians chapter three, it's brilliant. It says this, the law was added because of transgression. Every time they transgress, God had, okay, don't use the trampoline door or the door of the dishwasher as a trampoline. That's what God's doing over and over and over, but it's not his design. What he wants it's Abraham-like people that walk with him in faith and trust him. That's what he wants, that he's good and generous. And they obey him because they know he's good and he's generous. And so Exodus then, what happens is there's this massive part of Exodus that's all about building a tent. It's called the tabernacle. It's literally called the tent of, nobody knows, meeting. Why? You wouldn't meet with me on the mountain. Okay, I'm gonna make this tent and then you can meet with me in the tent because that's God's desire. I want to meet with you. But then the tent is all finished. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. And it says this, nobody could go in it. So that's how Exodus ends. I want you to come up. I want to speak with you face to face. I'm going to walk with you because of faith. I want this for you. But you won't go up the mountain and now you can't even go into the tent. And so the end of Exodus is actually very deflating. And then you get Leviticus. And the reason why is, okay, I gotta have all these purity rules so that you can actually come into my presence because I'm like the sun, right? So that's a whole different message, all right? So what you see throughout the Torah, I'd say throughout the Bible, is God is always looking for people that will trust him and walk with him in faith because he's good and generous. Genesis one and two was, look at this really great place I made for you, Adam and Eve. It's beautiful. You have everything you need. Now, trust me, don't eat of that one tree. That's what he wanted. And what'd they do? Ate the tree. Moses, the law guy, does he ever get into the promised land? No. Abraham, who we know was not a stellar dude, right? Lies about his wife. When he's told to move, kind of halfway obeys God. Hagar issue. He's not the best. He keeps Lot with him. Lot almost totally ruins God's plan, right? Almost gives away the promised land to Lot. Like he, he's not the best, but he's all over the promised land. Why? Because he believed God was good 
and generous. The two million that are set free, freed from Egypt bore on eagles' wings, knowing how good and how generous God is. They won't obey God at the mountain. Then two years later, they come to the banks of the Jordan River. They're ready to go into the promised land that God has said, it's good. It flows with milk and honey. You're gonna love it, man, going to that land. And what do they do? They won't go in. It's scary in there. There are tall people in there. They're like 6'4". Six, 6'2", four. Six, we could take them, but 6'4", I, I don't know, man. That's just too big, right? So what happens to those two million? They die. But two guys, two guys, Joshua and Caleb, that believed God was good and generous, and if he said he was gonna give us the land, he's gonna give us the land, just like Abraham looked up the stars and said, if he said he's gonna give me those, I believe him. Those two guys, they get into the land. Because what God's doing is looking for a group of people that pursue him out of faith, that he's good and generous. And then they act on that faith. I'll go in that land, no problem. Because God's good and generous. And you see even the New Testament. Who is the group of people that Jesus clashes with the most? The Mosaic law keepers. They're called Pharisees. And then there are these moments where Jesus just explodes. There's two of them. Only two times Jesus says, that's great faith. The first is this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and says, my daughter, would you heal her? And Jesus says, I wasn't sent to Canaanite, literally dogs. I was sent to the Israelites. And then she won't give up. She says, yes, I know that. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus just smiles and says, that is great faith. I have not seen that in Israel. Your daughter's healed. The centurion that comes to Jesus, because his servant is sick, says, would you please heal my servant? And Jesus says, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, you don't need to go with me. I understand authority. If I tell somebody to go and do something, they do it. You have that kind of authority. You're that powerful. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, that is great faith. Be it done, just as your faith says that Jesus explodes over and over and over again when people have this incredible faith. You're a good, generous God. Yes, right? So what does Pentecost mean then? Back to that. What does Pentecost mean? Pentecost means this. Jesus went up the mountain that you and I were afraid of, that you and I could not go up. He went up the mount called Calvary repaired the bridge, rechanged actually our very DNA, who we are, so that he doesn't have to send down the law to us anymore. He sends down what? His spirit to us. That now it's written on our hearts. It's written on our hearts. Those of us that say, oh, he is a good and generous God. He gave his best for me. How can I not follow him and pursue him? That's what happens. He sends it down. And here's what this should do to you. Two things. When you really capture this idea of Pentecost, here's what it should do to you. Number one, it cures what I think is one of the biggest lies of the enemy. Have you ever heard whispered into your soul, you are not a good Christian? If people only knew what you've done, what you're doing, what you think, if people only knew that stuff, they wouldn't let you set foot in church. Ever heard that? I hear it. But you have to remember, 
we come in like Abraham, who lied, who had the Hagar problem, who half obeyed. We come in like Abraham. Not by works, we come in by faith. Yeah, I know all that, but God is good and God is generous. And the veil has been rent in the temple and Jesus invites me in based on his work. That's how I get in. I get in because of him, period. Not anything that I've done or will do. And I tell people all the time this one that struggle with this. I tell them Romans chapter five, verse eight, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then I ask this question, when Jesus died for your sins, how many of those sins were in the future? Unless you're really old, like 2000 years old, all of them. So when Jesus died for you, he knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew all your thoughts. He knew your sins. He knew it all. And he says, it doesn't matter. They're mine. They're going to trust that I am good and I'm generous. And they're not going to make up a new Torah to keep. They're going to walk with me by faith and faith alone. That's how they're going to walk with me. And so you and I get to come boldly into his throne room of grace. When Satan targets me with those enemies, I just agree. But I say, I come in to a throne of grace not a grace of work, not, not of works. And then secondly, here's what it's supposed to do to you. If you look back at verse five of Exodus, it says this. If you'll shema my voice, keep my covenant, Abrahamic covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter actually grabs this text and puts it into his epistles and says, this is it. Don't you know who you are? When you realize God's design from us, from Genesis 1, which will be finally fulfilled in Revelation 22, the garden city of Jerusalem, when we dwell with him there, that God's desire has always been, I want to be with my people. I want my people to be treasured possessions, kingdoms of priests, holy nations. I want them to be that. I want them to know how valuable they are. They're so valuable that I'll give myself for them. That's how valuable they are. When you finally allow, it's called your gospel identity. When you finally allow your gospel identity to sink into your heart, something changes in you. It's amazing. I'll try to explain it with this story. The guy that told me this story, uh, Dave Corson, I was a uh, missionary with him in Vanuatu, for about a year, brilliant place. And we'd have these little devotions in the morning and he told this story, I've never forgot it. It's a story about Robert Downey. Robert Downey was a guy who lived in central California, loved to go yard sailing. His wife hated it because she said, you're just, people see you coming and you buy anything, you buy junk all the time. He's like, ah, it's all right. So one Saturday morning, he's gonna head out and his wife is like, I'm not going with you and don't buy any junk. Don't buy snow in Alaska because that's, the, that's what they'll sell you. It's like, ah. So he goes out, looks around. Mid-afternoon, he's at this moving sale and he notices this old moldy tablecloth and he kind of looks underneath it. And it's a Harley Davidson motorcycle in terrible shape, rusted and broke and thrashed and everything. He's like, hey, you selling a bike? Yeah, I am. How much? Ah, so you can take it for scrap, 35 bucks. Deal, he buys it. Brings it home, puts it in his garage. His wife comes out. 
Robert Downey, you've done it again. Look at this piece of junk. A uh, couple months go by, doesn't do anything. Then he goes out to tinker on it. He's like, man, this thing is in bad shape. It's really rusty, really destroyed. He's wondering if they make parts for it anymore. So he calls Harley Davidson. They say, you need to get the serial number so we know what bike it is. So he gets it, gives it to him. The guy's like, wow, this is an old bike. I don't know if we have any parts for it. Let me check into it. Week later, gets a call from the head of sales. And the head of sales says, hey, Mr. Downey, um, I've got a question for you on that bike. Now, we need some more information to kind of know what to give you and, and what kind of bike it is. Could you do me a favor and go out, take off the seat and tell me if you see anything underneath there? He's like, sure, I'll call you back. No, no, I'll wait. So goes out there, takes off the seat, comes back in, yeah, yeah, there was. Oh, what was underneath there? Uh, in, in like hand-painted letters, it says, the king. Oh, okay, Mr. Downey. Uh, that motorcycle is very important to Harley Davidson and we'd like to buy it from you um, and we're willing to pay you right now $50,000. So he goes, would you repeat that for my wife? Come here. <laughs> now, as the story goes, as Dave told me, he says, uh, next morning, VP of sales from headquarters calls. Hey, 50,000 was probably an insult to you. We're willing to give you 250,000. And the next morning, Jay Leno calls. Hey, heard you have a bike. I'll give you half a million for it. He says, why? This thing is a rusty piece of junk. It's worthless. And what he answered was, no. It's not the condition of the bike that makes it a treasured possession. It's who owned it. The king, Elvis Presley, owned that bike. And it's priceless, right? That's you and me. If you're young and you don't know who Elvis Presley is, <laughs> he's like Justin Bieber, but bigger, better. I don't know. Is he? I don't know. I mean, who's bigger? I don't <laughs> That's you and me. We may feel like rusty hunks of junk. That, that doesn't even come into this equation. God just says, if you hear my voice and you will trust that I am good and that I am generous. This is what you become. You become my treasured possession. You become a kingdom of priests. You become a holy nation. This is gospel identity. That's what it is. And it's amazing. And the New Testament says a couple of times, Revelation 3, 12, that Jesus has put his name on you. You are stamped with the name of the king. And because of that, you're a treasured possession. You have the name of the king on you. You. you know what this is supposed to do to you? Here's what it's supposed to do to you. It's my favorite story of Julius Caesar. When he was a young man, like, I don't know, late teens or something, he was kidnapped by pirates. And at that time, there was pirates all over the Mediterranean. They're everywhere. And they kidnapped Julius Caesar, and then they put a ransom back for him. And when Julius Caesar, as this 18, 19-year-old kid, heard about the amount they asked, he was incensed. He's like, that's too little. You should ask double that. I am a Roman citizen of the family of Caesar. That's way too little. So they said, okay, great. We'll ask for double. <laughs> His parents were super happy about that. So he was on this ship for like three months while they're waiting for the ransom to be worked out. And the whole time he's walking around, he's telling these pirates, I'm gonna go back. I will raise a Roman army. I will come out here. I will get you guys, I'll put you in prison and I'll take my ransom money back. 
and they're just laughing at him. He gets ransomed, goes back to Rome, raises an army, builds a navy. They didn't have a navy. Builds a navy, chases down the pirates, captures them, puts them in prison, and gets his money back. Brilliant. Why? Because he knew who he was. I am a Roman citizen of the family of Caesar. Are you kidding me? That's what's supposed to happen to you and me. Are you kidding? I am a citizen of heaven. I am a son, a daughter of King Jesus. Are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I'm a kid of the king. And when you get that, it changes, right? When you finally actually allow that to sink into your mind, I am a kid of the king. Then you roll back into Grant's pass and you go kick some pirate booty. That's what you do. You, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I'm a citizen of heaven. I am a treasured possession. I am a holy nation. I'm a kingdom of priests. You're royal. Do you know the three ways you get royal? Born into it, adopted into it, married into it. Do you know as a believer, you are born again, adopted, and married. You are thrice royal kids of King Jesus. When you actually allow that to sink into your heart, it transforms how you live your life. Now, you can't use me that way. You can't use my body that way. I'm a kid of the king. No, I don't do that stuff. No, I don't go there. I'm a kid of the king. No, I don't use those substances. I don't need that junk. I'm a kid of the king. I'm a treasured possession. When it actually takes root in your life, it's called gospel transformation. When that identity actually begins to take root in your life, it transforms your life. You become something different. I've been given his spirit. I've been given his mind. I've been given an inheritance. I've been given a citizenship. I've been given purpose. I am a kid of the king. And I'm going into Grant's Pass. And pirates beware. That's what happens. Amen? So Jesus... I pray as we partake. I pray that we would know we are seated at the king's table. The king of the universe has invited us to a meal because we're his, because we're treasured possessions, because we're a kingdom of priests, because we're a holy nation. Not because of great things we've done, but because you went up the mountain for us and you sent down your spirit into us and we become the very temple, the dwelling place of you, the tabernacle of you now. That's who we are. So I ask for this service as we eat and as we drink I pray that we would eat and drink who we are. That we carry the name of the king and we're treasured. That we'd eat and drink, we carry the spirit of the king and we're powerful. 
that we carry the forgiveness of the king and we're clean. And we carry the good news of the king that we get to share with every person that will listen. That's who we are. So would you fill these vessels, empower us to live what we are this day. And I ask this in your name, amen.